The human spirit is unconquerable. We are individuals and we are sovereign, born with unlimited potential, gifted from our creator. Our mission is to break free from the systems that bind us. I volunteer as tribute. We strive for peace and prosperity and overcome all challenges, roadblocks, and obstacles. We are empowered because we think for ourselves and we act for ourselves. We are self-reliant and independent, but guided by the wisdom of those who share our values. What possible difference can I make? There is no government, no ruler, nor ideas that are able to stop us. We are driven to succeed because we seek political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. It's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. This is Mike Corbell, and you are listening to The Invictus Mind. Well, hello, everyone. This is your host, Mike Corbell. This is the Invictus Mind podcast. I'm happy to be here and happy for the listeners to this program. It seems the powers that be do not want this message to be let out as I have been temporarily suspended from using Facebook. And of course, there is no way to appeal this process or even ask what I did to get in trouble. This happened for a day a couple weeks back, but now it's a seven-day ban, and honestly, I'm not even sure I care. We will continue to spread the message of political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom regardless. As always, you can find this program on your favorite podcatcher. We are currently on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and CastBox. If you like this show and finds it adds value to you, then please share it with three of your friends and leave me a review on Apple. Right now, you can also find my content and all the alternative channels. I post this show and my other work on Twitter, LinkedIn, MeWe, Minds.com, and Float. The videos of this podcast will be up on YouTube as long as they allow it. However, since I do believe that it is important to network and stay in communication, the best way to ensure you have access to this content and more is by joining the Invictus newsletter. There I will share the podcast, the show notes, and of course, all the other important information. If you are looking for a business opportunity, just want to learn a couple of tips on how to better yourself financially, or check out any of the affiliates I work with, including the Tuttle Twins book series, and information regarding Kratom, CBD, or Delta-8 THC products, all you need to do is text the word Invictus, as I-N-V-I-C-T-U-S, to the number 33777. There you can join the email list and stay in the loop. All right. Well, today in the show, I welcome back a guest who appeared in episode 32. His name, of course, is Michael Harris. He works as a criminal defense attorney in the state of Texas. And not only has he been on this show, but he's made a couple of appearances on my friend's show, the Year Zero program. I asked Michael to return to the program to d- discuss the recent inauguration of President Joe Biden and a little history of the inaugural process. I think this will be an exciting discussion. So without further ado, here's Michael Harris. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing well, Michael. Uh, these days, I'm grateful when anybody gives us any kind of a platform where we can talk about uh, law and liberty. So uh Happy to uh, share what I think and what I've learned and what I uh, know. I'll try to make it clear with my opinion, which is legal history and uh, so forth. Well, you know, getting banned on Facebook just opened my eyes to the fact that we need to go harder, right? <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, in the game of chess, at the, the night goes around pawns. So uh, we need to find some ways to go around uh, loopholes. And I can tell you that uh, the current debate among libertarians is kind of like, can these private companies do that? 
Now, there is case law out there that says that when a quote unquote private business entity becomes so large and so powerful that they begin to act as if they are a government entity, then they are subject to the rules of a government. And I think definitely big tech has uh, gotten there. Now, I'm not, I I didn't have the time to go do an in-depth research to be able to quote you cases and so forth on, or any kind of where that line is drawing. But uh, I think definitely that's going to be an issue that is going to be uh, litigated in the coming days. Yeah, I'm very sure of it. Uh, there is some precedent for this type of action in the history of the United States. We'll get into that a little later. But uh, I just wanted to start about the interesting event that took place in Washington, D.C. this week. You know, of course, it could be said anything that takes place in D.C. is interesting. But uh, on Wednesday, we had another coronation or what I call a coronation for the 46th king of these United States. I prefer emperor myself. But uh, <laughs> you know, as far as Washington, D.C., I think John F. Kennedy said it best that Washington, D.C. had all the charm of the North and all the energy of the South. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think uh, Emperor Biden, and I think we should openly call him an emperor at this stage of the uh, American history, got, uh, got, uh, got uh, empowered as the uh, 46th emperor of the United States. And uh, I mean, one, one thing is kind of like uh you know, the big great theme, according to the mainstream media, is how we're all so wonderfully united. Uh, Michael, I don't know about you, but I don't feel united. And, uh, you know, uh, I think it's really easy to say that uh, you're united when you've got uh, 20,000 armed National Guardsmen around you. So, uh, oh, yeah, you feel very, very united under a circumstance like that. So, uh, but that being said, I think one of America's found, uh, founders really didn't agree on uh, very many things, but one thing they did really agree on is that they wanted to see a peaceful transfer of power. So I think what happened on January 20th qualified as a peaceful transfer of power. Now, I, just, I don't kind of, kind of like a peaceful transfer of power at the point of 20,000 armed National Guardsmen. That's a bit unusual in American history. I don't think that's ever happened before. Yeah, I was just going to ask that. That that is unprecedented, and doesn't sound like it's uh, very peaceful. I mean, twenty thousand troops are there. You know, what, what's the government trying to hide? Were they there trying to protect Biden? Or are they trying to protect the revolt or the uprise of the citizens? It's like, okay, what are we to expect of the next four years under this uh, uh, the emperor Biden, as you call it? I got to get a soundtrack for that, like you know, Darth Vader soundtrack. The emperor. <laughs> The Empire Strikes Back here. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, for whatever it's worth, I think of the what were described as the viable candidates that the Democratic Party put out. I think Joe Biden was probably the least bad and the most likely to beat Donald Trump, which that was setting the bar pretty damn low. Uh, so uh, I think his whole thing is he's going to try to recreate the Obama administration is kind of like in his mind. And from what I've listened to supporters, it's, it's like, uh, you know, o Obama 3.0. I don't think it's going to work out to be honest with you. I, I think 
Definitely, we're headed to a uh, collapse of our mon monetary system for certain in the next four years. I, I've, on that front, I just don't see how our monetary system, but I mean, I'm a lawyer, not an economist, even though I did study under one of the greatest economists of all time, Murray Rothbard. So I do have some, some background talk about that, but really law and history are my primary fields of expertise. Well, that's perfect, Michael. You know, anybody who's read a few books by uh, Mises or by Rothbard, you know, can understand that what the government is doing is just not sustainable. And uh, that's probably on the back of everyone's mind is what's going to happen with our monetary system. But we're not here to talk about that today because you can turn on any libertarian show and, and get uh, lectured for hours about how that stuff works. Well, one of these days you ought to have me come on and talk about the whole Bretton Woods agreement and uh, where that led in history. Cause I mean, a good Murray Rothbard student could tell you all about that. But, <laughs> uh, I'm more interested right now in uh, the whole thing of them shutting down people and kicking people off social media I mean, the whole thing with Apple and Amazon and the site Parler. Now, I was not on Parler. I did not parlay with people or anything. And I, I use Apple products. I buy things on Amazon. But I am not uh, at all wild about Apple just suddenly deciding that uh, we're going to, you know, kill you. We're going to eliminate your app and Amazon saying that uh, we're going to kick you off our platforms just purely arbitrary and, and that the excuse and uh, I think Barack Obama's uh, chief of staff Rahm Emanuel had the classic democratic socialist line of never let a crisis go to waste that is their mentality is anything that they can call a crisis and they can use to expand the size shape of uh, a centralized government, they're going to uh, use it. Now, what surprises me is that these companies like Apple, like Amazon, are just willing participants in the process. Uh, now, what I know about this events that took place on January 6th, there was a lot of things that led up to it. But from what I've heard, there was most of the people who found out about it and got it came from Facebook and Twitter, not from Parler, which I know that there is some, there's some kind of group that calls themselves Women for America First. Who exactly they are, who exactly what their funding is from, very serious question that, frankly, I think should be investigated. Mm -hmm. But they were very, very active on Facebook. I haven't seen any evidence at all that they were active on Parler. So I, I just, speaking as a lawyer, I don't see how they can use the grounds as that to just totally kill the business of Parler. Uh, I know I heard an interview of Parler CEO, uh, Megan Kelly, the journalist interviewed him, and he said that they, they were working closely with Amazon before this happened. And all of a sudden, after, after this happened, Amazon just notified them abruptly they were being kicked off and because they weren't doing a good enough job of uh, monitoring violence. And they offered to use Amazon's product. It's kind of like, hey, y'all say that y'all have this great product that uh, monitors on your cloud server for uh, you know, violent and illegal stuff will use your product. 
And apparently Amazon's own product wasn't good enough to clear, you know, and <laughs> give them clearance. Now, speaking as a lawyer, I think that I think Parler's got a pretty good case to make that uh, Amazon acted as if it was a government agent and arm of the government. It should be un under the same rules and jurisdiction as a government agent. Yeah. So that could be like a racketeering charge or something like that, right? Well, I think you'd be a, have a hard time making a criminal case stick. I think as far as civil litigation, I think they definitely could have a civil lawsuit to make. And I think it would tie into uh, the First Amendment and uh, right to free speech, right to uh, free press, independent media. Mm -hmm. uh, also, it's kind of like, let's note the fact that the mainstream media is actively participating in the burying of parlor. So, yeah, they're part, they're part of it as well. You know, what's disappointing to me is I, I was late joining the parlor game, but uh, I saw this, uh, the writing on the wall before the, uh, the infamous January 6th incident that uh, the social media companies were just left and right starting to cut people off. And one of my mentors told me to get on parlor because he said that the algorithm for that was actually more open than on Facebook. In other words, as a content creator, I was more likely to see my stuff seen by uh, by the viewers and 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 have it actually advertised quicker than I would on Facebook, for example. So I I built up a list and uh, I had it up to about 250 followers right before that all happened. And now I, it seems like I gotta, that went away. Now I got to start from scratch in some of these other channels like MeWe and and Float and whatnot. So it's a, it's a constant battle to have uh, what I think is probably best for the future anyway is decentralization of social media. Oh, I think it's definitely going to have to be decentralized. And I will say that you podcasters are the leaders in it. I kind of see you podcasters performing the role of pamphleteers and leading up to the American Revolution. You're the people on the outside. Most Americans don't know this today, but actually the, the, the British colonial officials, the governors sent from England, they didn't like... Uh, American newspapers. So they banned a lot of American newspapers and they prosecuted American uh, people who ran the uh, colonial, quote unquote, colonial press. So one of the responses that uh, the colonists did was, well, we'll just start sending out pamphlets instead <laughs> of newspapers. So, so uh, yeah, that's kind of like a little legal way around the problem. So that's kind of the way I see you podcasters now is you, you're performing the same function as the pamphleteers did leading up to the American Revolution. Well, there you go. So speaking of American Revolution and historical times in the United States, I think one of the big problems uh, facing this generation is that uh, they lose a lot of the historical facts that took place in the United States. I mean, of course, this past uh, election was highly contentious, but I don't think it was probably the most contentious, as some people might say, in the history of elections. I'm thinking back to the election of 1801. 1800. But uh, yeah, that, 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 I definitely think a good argument could be made that the election of 1800 was way more contentious than this one was uh, of, of 2020. And uh, as far as going back and to go back into the kind of the history of, you know, when they, when they, you know, America started off with the Articles of Confederation. And as far as history, you think it should be pointed out that our entire legal system is based on history. Okay. I mean, we, we don't have like a divine right of King who's anointed by a Pope or anything like that to say who our leaders were. Basically, uh, we are we are a nation that's it was 
it's been well stated we're a nation of laws, not of men. And uh, so, yeah, our entire legal system is based on the study of history. So I, I shouldn't look at it as completely irrelevant. Uh, me personally, I've always been fascinated by, by history and loved it. Been a his, history student. At one time, I seriously considered becoming a history professor, but that was right at the point that the political correctness movement was getting started. So I was like, hey, I'm going to law school instead, become a lawyer. Uh, but when they, but we started off as an articles confederation, very loose collection of different uh, states. Uh, after we won independence from the British and the British finally decided they were going to leave us alone, uh, they still continued to function under the Articles of Confederation. Uh, I won't go into all the details of everything, of all the pros and cons, but basically, initially, they decided they were going to have a convention to revise, quote-unquote, revise the Articles of Confederation. And basically, it was 78, 78 white male property owners met in secret in Philadelphia to create a new government. Uh, if you want to call it a coup, you can, but uh, it's kind of, kind of like, you know, what is a totally above board? Uh, but the main thing, if you had asked, if you were able to take a poll of most Americans at the time and say, okay, who's two, who are the two most popular Americans? They would have said George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. And both of them were there. <laughs> and both of them kind of approved of it. So that, uh, that carried it a lot of weight in a lot of people. But mainly when it came to the ratification process, the group of people who supported what came out of the Philadelphia Convention, they were called the Federalists. Mm -hmm. The people who opposed it were called the Anti-Federalists. Okay. So they, the Anti-Federalists, well, what today we would consider libertarians and anarchists. Okay. Uh, the the Anti-Federalists found out really quickly, though, that they had major problems when it came to fighting and opposing the, rat the, the ratification of the Constitution. Number one, uh, lessons that the libertarians have still not learned. They were completely disorganized. <laughs> they had no leadership, but almost as important as the fact that they had no media. The, the, the Federalists controlled the newspapers mm. in all the major cities. So they had... So they had no media coverage whatsoever. So the Constitution did get ratified. Now, James Madison was smart enough to realize he was part of the Federalists. He wrote many of the Federalist papers, and he did play a major role in the writing of the Constitution. I, I think this whole thing now, we call him the father of the Constitution. No, he, he played a big part in it, but no, he wasn't the father of it. Yet what he did do after the ratification process, he kind of went to the other Federalists and said, you know, these anti-Federalists, they do have some valid points. Mm -hmm. So he did write up the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments. So he did play a major role in the, uh, the drafting of the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments and having them included in the constitution. So that he did do. Uh, now the thing is, uh, when they initially came up with the idea of a president, Madison's original idea was the people elected the House of Representatives, the members of the House of Representatives, 
then the members of the House of Representatives decide who the senators are going to be. Then the senators decide who the president's going to be. So it's kind of like this little kind of like layer cake thing of the top people filter up. Yeah. And there was a lot of there was a lot of contention over that because. Yes, they, there was. There was they, a lot. One, of one thing the founders wanted to avoid was executive governance. And so they uh, they were concerned about the the mob rule in a democratic process by having just an average uh, citizen vote. But then they also thought that there could be a lot of corruption with just the states themselves picking the uh, the electors for for president. Well, it's the thing that they had broken away from the British monarchy. So most of them did not want to go back to a new monarchy. Uh, Alexander Hamilton being an exception in that court. But uh, so, yeah, they were on the one hand, actually, they were pretty hostile to, to democracy as a whole. I mean, John Adams in particular had seen the excesses of mob violence in Boston during the colonial period. Mm -hmm. So they were pretty hostile to, on the one hand, they did not want to have a new American king to replace the British king. On the other hand, they did not want mob violence, mob rule. They, so what they looked to in history was the Roman Republic. And you can see that in their architecture. I mean, the, the, the pen names they use when they wrote the, uh, the Federalist Papers. They, uh, and they were pretty good uh, his, uh, students of Roman history. Uh, so they wanted to re create a, a republic to replace the British monarchy. Their big fear was is that the, uh, the republic would turn into an empire. They, some of them refer to it as the Roman curse of when a republic turns into an empire. So that was what they really truly wanted to avoid. Now, uh, the initial plan was is that there would be, the, the presidential election would kind of function like today's Iowa caucuses, that the voters would kind of weed out, give us like a top four or five candidates and then the House of Representatives takes that list and they pick the best. They really, truly believe that George Washington was the only person who was really ever going to get a majority vote. Because by that time, Benjamin Franklin was so old, he couldn't even walk. Mm -hmm. So they really, truly believe that old George was the only one who's ever going to get a majority of the vote. Uh, the person who gets the second most votes will be the vice president. Then the president picks his cabinet, so forth, so forth. Uh, obviously the first two terms that, uh, George Washington had worked without that plan worked without a problem. George Washington's like, uh, after his two terms, he's like, I'm having enough. I'm going back to Mount Vernon. Uh, George Washington put all his support behind his vice president, John Adams from Massachusetts. A lot of people felt like, okay, after all these years of the Virginian George Washington, it'd probably be a good idea to have somebody from from another state anyway. So, and he and John Adams was, uh, you know, very good in well with the, the the Federalist. Now, very early on in uh, George Washington's administration, though, things started breaking up into two factions. They rallied around Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton was George Washington's Treasury Secretary. Thomas Jefferson was uh, Secretary of State. 
I should also point out that during the uh, George Thomas Jefferson had absolutely nothing to do with the writing of the Constitution. He was America's ambassador to France during his time. So he wasn't even in the country when all this was going on. Now, he did write later. These are the things I like about the Constitution. These are things I do not like about the Constitution. So he did uh, kind of play a part. And I think I think Madison in particular was uh, gave a lot of deference to Thomas Jefferson. So he did play a part there. Uh, but when it came to uh, the actual governor, governing of the country, very rapidly, these two factions rose up. And actually, meant, most of the founders were actually terrified by the idea of what we now call political parties. It right. really just scared the bejesus out of them when they saw these two political parties just rise up from apparently nowhere because uh, there's nothing about that in the Constitution at all. Okay, but move forward to George Washington retires. John Adams gets, to, gets the election as his replacement. Thomas Jefferson gets the second most votes. So therefore, under the procedure at the time, Thomas Jefferson becomes John Adams vice president. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want the greatest example of a disloyal vice president, <laughs> uh, basically Thomas Jefferson comes in second in mm. that category. Number one will come in later into the story if we go into Aaron Burr later. But anyway, but as the rules at that time, John Adams becomes president, Thomas Jefferson becomes vice president. Uh, now, it was that during this period of time that things got, there were a lot of events that led to the Alien and Sedition Acts. That created, that is definitely the black mark in John Adams' history. If you want me to go into the details, you're going to talk about uh, silencing dissent, uh, kicking people off uh, Facebook, uh, deplatforming parlor. That's mm -hmm. nothing compared to what was going on with the Alien and Sedition Acts. They put people in jail. <laughs> for, right. For, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they like lock people up in cages for mm -hmm. writing things that John Adams didn't and the Federalists did not want them to write. <laughs> so yeah, what, what I what I read about that was, uh, of course, you mentioned political parties. We had uh, I, I believe it, it was no longer the, the Federalist and Anti-Federalist, but I think it became the Whig Party and the Democratic Republican Party, which is actually now today just a Democrat Party. Well, that was a little bit later. Uh, Jefferson, like, like I said, the anti-federalists realized that they, they needed to do a better job, as we now say, of messaging. Mm. <laughs> and they so they needed a leader. So they very quickly saw Thomas Jefferson as their leader. And they started rallying around Thomas Jefferson. And this is about the time that James Madison left the Federalists. Now, they call them the followers of Thomas Jefferson call themselves Democratic Republicans. I don't know why. That's just what the name they settled on. Going to call ourselves Democratic Republicans. Mm -hmm. And so that was what so it was the Federalist and the Democratic Republicans. And but the whole thing with the Alien and Sedition Acts, that led to a very simple question of what do you do when Congress enacts an unconstitutional law? Because that was something that really wasn't addressed in the Constitution of what exactly do we do when Congress passes and the president signs an unconstitutional law. Uh, 
Now, Jefferson and Madison, their response was, is that uh, you can look it up in the history of the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. They said, well, if enough states get together, they can declare an act of the federal government unconstitutional. That was the response that Jefferson and Madison came up with. Nullification. Nullification, basically the nullification argument. Mm -hmm. But throughout the election of 1800. And all this time, basically, we were we almost went to war with France during this period of time. Uh, most people do not realize that, which I won't go into that. But yeah, we very, we very, very, very nearly were at a major war with France during this period of time. That's that's really what was the driving force behind the Alien and Sedition Acts. But uh, things got so chaotic and almost out of hand, but there was actually a serious movement to try to get George Washington to come out of retirement to once again be president for a third time. Problem with that plan was that George Washington died in 1799. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that plan really got shot the hell on handbasket really fast. Right. And so it basically wound down the, the election of 1800. By this time, I'll just use the phrase anti-federalist versus the federalist led by John Adams. And the federalists still continued to support John, John Adams. Uh, the Democratic Republicans, though, they had at least learned a lesson that they needed to organize. So, buddy, they organized. They got behind Thomas Jefferson and a man from New York called Aaron Burr. And so they's like, we are united that we are 100% going to vote for Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr with our two votes. You were allowed to vote two, two people back then. They were so successful at organizing their votes. Thomas, uh, that basically Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr basically tied for first. That, that's how so locked, uh, they were so successful at uh, organizing the electoral college that basically they were tied. And so I kind of like, okay, what do we do now? We've got two candidates that we all both agreed we wanted to be president and vice president, but we, it was supposed to be Thomas Jefferson as the president and Aaron Burr as the vice president. Mm -hmm. And uh, now you would think the obvious solution that was Aaron would be Aaron Burr from New York. It's kind of like, well, you know, this was a big misunderstanding. I'll be number two. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll take the high road. I'll, I'll step aside, let Tom, big, big TJ be the big guy, and I'll wait my time. Nope, and that definitely is not what happened. Aaron Burr, basically, he told Thomas Jefferson and the other anti-democratic uh, uh, Republicans, I got just as much right to be president as Thomas Jefferson does. Mm -hmm. that threw things into a complete and total chaotic mess that uh, got sent to the House of Representatives. And I think they had something like 20 se separate votes that kept coming the same way every single time. Uh, they could not break the deadlock. And of all people, Alexander Hamilton was the one who put his support behind Thomas Jefferson to make mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson the president. And basically, Alexander Hamilton's like, I don't like Thomas Jefferson. I don't trust Thomas Jefferson. 
but I really just really hate Aaron Burr. <laughs> and so, so yeah. Now, after that's when they passed the uh, 12th Amendment to uh, set up the current system where they have a completely separate vote for president and vice president. Mm-hmm. And that's really what locked in for all practical purposes, the current system that we have. Interesting little side note in history that uh, things got so bad between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr challenged Alexander Hamilton to a duel where Aaron Burr shot and killed him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, say what you want to about Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden. Uh, they didn't. They didn't try to kill each other, at least. So I, I think they should bring back the duel, but th- you know, that's just my opinion. Well, I mean, Rudy Giuliani in in the rally on uh, January sixth said that uh, they were going to bring back trial by combat. There you which, go. Which, uh, speaking as a lawyer, that would basically be the equivalent of a uh, of a Harvard professor of astrophysics saying it's going to bring back the notion that the sun revolves around the Earth. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> Michael, correct me if I'm wrong in this history. At the same time that uh, the uh, fiasco between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr was going on, John Adams was still – this was the end of his first term, and he was still in the, in the contention for, to run a second term. But people like Thomas Jefferson and, and Aaron Burr more. In fact, I, I heard that because Jefferson and Burr were tied – Adams came in third and he was just so uh, discouraged by that, that he basically, he didn't even attend the inauguration. Yeah. I mean, just like Trump did not attend this one for Biden. I had not heard that before, but uh, John Adams did not attend Jefferson's inauguration. He, he, John Adams refused to attend the inauguration of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, that was back in the days when they had the uh, the three fifths clause, where slaves were counted as three fifths of the person in the population. Uh, plus, also that one of the effects, the events that led to the Alien and Sedition Acts, was there was a very large immigration of French people to the Southern states. Mm-hmm. Right combination of the French Revolution and the, uh, the, the Haitian slave revolt in, in Haiti led to a large influx of Frenchmen uh, to America, French Catholics. And they were, they were pro-Jefferson, uh, right? They were very pro-Jefferson, and plus the fact that John Adams was a New England Puritan. Mm-hmm. And really, in the late 17th century, basically the two great tastes that did not go great together were New England Puritans and French Catholics. Those two just simply did not mix very well. So John Adams and his supporters were very, very keen to point out now that John Adams got the majority of the vote of native-born white men. Mm. Uh, so that that created... That, that was their big ploy was, is that John Adams got the majority vote of native born white men. So that, that, that led to a lot of hard feelings as well. But not only did the, the Federalists get voted out, not only did John Adams lose the presidency, but also the, the Democratic Republicans wound up winning the majority vote of both the House of Representatives and the Senate. So therefore, John Adams and the Federalists kind of like, oh, what do we do now? Well, they had, uh, so they decided they were going to pack the court system. 
because they were going to lose the presidency. They were going to lose control of the House. They were going to lose control of the Senate. So as they, they said, our last bastion is we are going to pack the court system. So John Adams and his secretary of state, John Marshall, just started filling out judicial appointments. Literally their last days in office, they, the, from, from what we can tell, the two of them were up until midnight on the final day of John Adams' administration, just basically creating judicial appointments right to the very, very, till the clock struck midnight. Interesting. And yeah, apparently they just left them on a table. <laughs> it is kind of like it's an incredible number of them. And they, they created something like uh, 70 justices of the peace for Washington, D.C., which mm. at the time, Washington, D.C. was basically just a glorified slave labor camp. Uh, so, like, why on earth did they need 70 justices of the peace? Uh, there were so many appointments that uh, when Thomas Jefferson came in, he made his secretary of state, James Madison, they, they, they walk into the, the White House. And from what we can tell, literally, they just walked in. And they saw this great, big, huge pile of due disappointments just sitting on a table. <laughs> and like, what do we do with these? And uh, apparently, Thomas Jefferson was so angry at John Adams and for doing that, that uh, he, told, he told James Madison, just don't even deliver them. Hmm. And that that led to a famous case, Marbury versus Madison, mm -hmm. uh, which I mean, if you want me to talk about that, I will. But uh, kind of kind of like it, it, it was it was that ultimately that led to the decision of what do you do uh, when a Congress passes an unconstitutional law with that <laughs> uh, unusual set of circumstances there. It sounds like, Michael, from the very beginning that this idea of the Constitution didn't really uh, bode well for the politicians themselves. But yet the powers that be just continue to, to grow more tyrannical uh, throughout history. You know, we can fast forward history a little bit and talk about other types of elections. Um, because, again, I think a lot of people in, in today's world think that, uh, you know, this division in Washington is like a brand new thing. But it, it's been very vitriolic for, for a long time. I mean, you think about the election of, uh, of Buchanan and, of course, Lincoln, which led to the Civil War. And, and uh, you know, I'm just going through history, you know, some of the other things that happened. Well, I mean, we've had several elections that were, that were questionable presidential elections. Uh, most people don't know this today, but the election of 1960 between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, it is portrayed in the, by the mainstream media and the academics of this great triumph of the Kennedys and all this Camelot stuff. That's a bunch of bull. All right. Basically, the reason that Kennedy won and Nixon lost was is that is state of Illinois, mm -hmm. that the, the Democrats controlled Chicago and northern Illinois. The Republicans controlled the uh, southern Illinois, the suburbs around St. Louis. It was a blatantly the fact that the Democrats just did a better job of stuff in the ballot boxes in Illinois. That's the reason why John F. Kennedy carried the state of Illinois and won the 1960 election. Now, the thing that was different about Richard Nixon was his response to that is, you know what? I'm a pretty young guy. I'll be back. So he just he just kept quiet, said, I'll be back, which, of course, eventually he was back. Uh, so, yeah. So that that 
there was another presidential election that was far more, you know, contentious. Uh, also, the election of 1780, 1876, I tend to get slightly dyslexic with my numbers, by the way. So due to reconstruction some civil war so basically it's uh there was literally army soldiers controlling the polling booths the polling places uh so yeah there was men in uniform with guns you know as people were coming in to vote and surprise surprise the republicans carried all these electoral places in the south uh much to much to the uh, disapproval of the local population, and that led to such a massive uproar because the Republican president candidate uh, Harrison won that one. No, I think that was Rutherford B. Hayes that that won that election. That that led to such a, a massive uproar that that led to pulling out troops out of the South, uh, and uh, the part the Posse Comitatus Act regarding using military on civilians was a result of that election. So we just reviewed about uh, 200 years of American history in about 30 minutes. For most people, history started, you know, four years ago when, uh, when Trump was elected. And I just find it fascinating, um, this process that we go through. You know, the peaceful transition of power still remains, although we wonder, you know, if that power that is elected actually is peaceful. That's that, I guess that could be a, a side conversation right there. But um, for now, 46, there was 45 men who became president, but we have 46 presidents. Uh, Grover Cleveland had a term in between another one. If, if I yeah, he's the only one who did not, uh, who got elected, lost, and came back and won a second time. For whatever it's worth, uh, Grover Cleveland was one of Murray Rothbard. I think he was Murray Rothbard's favorite president for whatever that's worth. Okay. So moving forward, there's speculation that, uh, that Donald Trump's going to come back in 2024. I personally don't think he will. I don't see why he would, why would he subject himself to the four years of hell that he just went through. But you know, uh, he's a man who uh, is vindictive and doesn't want to lose. So what, what do you think? He craves attention. He craves attention. That's uh, he is. I can tell you in my uh, work as a public defender, I've had specialized training in le- looking for certain personality disorders. Uh, one of them is narcissistic personality disorder. I think if you go on the Wikipedia page and look up narcissistic personality disorder, Donald Trump's picture might as well be there. Uh, so he, he is a man who absolutely craves attention. Uh, so I, I think it's just not in him to just go quietly off and play golf with his trophy wife. Uh, he's going to find something. I've heard he's going to start his own network. Uh, but uh, also it's a thing of Donald Trump really has no interest in doing the nuts and bolts of, of organizing and doing things uh, that I can tell anyway. So that's where he's going to have a problem. Now, as far as what comes in the future, now what's going on with this newest uh, articles of impeachment, that's going to have a lot to say. And for whatever it's worth, I think the first time they tried to impeach Donald Trump, 
the Democrats really did a disservice to the process. They had no chance the first time around of getting Republicans to vote for it. To me, it was purely partisan of uh, appeasing our base that we wanted to be able to be able to say that we impeached Donald. It was just, they really did a disservice the first time. Now, these events, uh, more recent this one, frankly, I think they should be investigated and it should be uh, decided of uh, just what role Donald Trump played in it. Now, speaking, uh, I've got a note here. Can you still hear me okay? Yep. Okay. All right. So I'm sorry about that. Uh, this time, I think it should. Now, speaking as a lawyer, I think if you just look solely at what Donald Trump said on this rally on January 6th, I think you're going to have a hard time making a case. Supreme Court case, Brandenburg versus Ohio, sets a very, very high standard on what speech, you know, prosecuting someone for inciting based solely on speech. That was a case a Ku Klux Klan leader in Ohio was literally saying, we're going to go to Washington and we're going to start hanging people. Uh, so, and the Supreme Court ruled that that qualified as for, under, for free speech protection. So I think if you look solely at what Donald Trump said at this rally, I don't think you're going to, the Democrats are who the power the Senate is going to be able to get past the Brandenburg test as is referred. Now, if you look though at everything Donald Trump did after the election, but more specifically what he did after the speech, I think Donald Trump's got some real problems. Hmm. I mean, the, the reports I've got mostly come from leftist sources. So I, I'm going to put that, uh, that disclaimer in there but i've heard reports that basically after the rally he just went uh, back to the white house and he watched the events on tv and he's kind of like you know oh isn't this funny my supporters are just really just raising hell out there uh we have reports that they that the capitol police tried to summon the national guard and that donald trump did not summon the national guard mm -hmm. uh which I don't know if you want me to go into that issue or not, but that definitely could be problematic for Donald Trump. Uh, the reports we have is actually it was Mike Pence was the one ultimately who authorized sending in the National Guard several hours after it was clear things were getting out of hand. That could be a very big problem for Donald Trump. Now, Michael, I, I don't mean to uh, distract you here, but uh... I um, when I was doing some research for this, I, I want to take us back just to a time in history we talked about earlier, Jefferson and Aaron Burr. The reason why I want to bring that up is because, according to what I've read, that there was a precedent set for uh, what is the executive? Um, they can't be they can't be tried after they get out of office because Aaron Burr in history, you said that he was a dissenter of Thomas Jefferson, and as the story goes, he left and he tried to. Uh, he was charged for treason by actually trying to uh, uh, take over some land that was purchased that was acquired by Thomas Jefferson. And so when the court was, when the case was brought to the Supreme court, Thomas Jefferson, basically he washed his hands and said, I'm not going to say anything that's going to indict uh, Aaron Burr. And at that point in time, they had a precedent where, okay, you know what the president, he, whatever he does, you know, you can be impeached, but he's basically not going to be charged for anything after the fact. Is there any truth to that or 
Not exactly. I mean, we, we have had instances where people in public office were prosecuted for after they left. Most notably, Ulysses S. Grant, uh, defense secretary, was prosecuted for bribery and uh, after after he, he left office. So, yeah, there has been precedent for doing that. Okay. Now, the, the whole thing with Aaron Burr and Jefferson, Jefferson obviously had a bad, did not like what Aaron Burr did and put him through. So Jefferson really did not hide the fact that uh, Aaron Burr was going to be a one-term vice president, irregardless of whether he won re-election 1804 or not. Okay. Uh, so... Aaron Burr kind of got the hint. And so he was planning on leaving Washington altogether. And so his plan was to go back to New York. I, I think he was going to uh, start up a law career, but there was such bad blood between him and Alexander Hamilton. Last, that, that was what led to the duel where, where Hamilton got killed. Mm-hmm. And for all practical purposes, that ended Aaron Burr's political career with the government. Uh, so he went to Louisiana. That was after the Louisiana purchase was in 1803, where we, uh, America, United States of America bought a big chunk of land from, uh, Napoleon west of the Mississippi. Correct. And so Aaron Burr did go to Louisiana. Aaron Burr did believe that ultimately there would be a war between, the United States of America and Spain regarding the territory of Texas. I'm a fourth generation Texan. Okay. So I I have some feelings about that. Now, when he was in Louisiana, he, he got close to a general named Wilkerson, very shady character in American history. General Wilkerson is somebody he, I kind of, relate him now to like Steve Bannon in modern terms. It's kind of, kind of like he definitely had an agenda and it's not real clear what his agenda was. He definitely was a troublemaker and it was kind of like, was he the instigator of it or was he the follower of it? It is very, very unclear, but apparently there was some, correspondence that was Aaron Burr's opponents say that he was in uh, open conspiracy with Wilkerson to to take to seize a, a part of the Louisiana purchase and break away from the United States. Aaron Burr's version of it is kind of like, no, I was not that Wilkerson did this and sullied my good name that I had and it's all part of the, all this fake news of people who are trying to fame me. Well, have we ever heard of that happening in American history? Oh, gee, let me think. Uh, so, like I said, what exactly really happened? But there was a trial where Aaron Burr was charged with treason and he was acquitted because uh, apparently there was nobody who could really corroborate Aaron Burr's involvement with Wilkerson. Uh, speaking as a constitutional historian practicing law, I find it kind of fascinating that Aaron Burr wound up using the Constitution as his defense for trying to violate the Constitution. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, interesting set of facts there. 
Yeah. So, I mean, obviously that was a side note, but uh, this idea of executive privilege is what I was really honing in on because now that Donald Trump is gone and, you know, we both can agree that he's probably not just going to go quietly, uh, whether this impeachment actually goes through or not the second impeachment of Donald Trump, you know, is there a precedent for him to be charged with anything? Because there's a lot of talk on social media of that, you know, all these pardons that Trump did, he should have pardoned himself and his family and whatever else. I can't really tell what he did that was necessarily illegal, but, uh, you know, shed some light on me there. Well, I, first of all, the president does have uh, almost unlimited power of the pardon. However, it specifically says in the Constitution, except under cases of indictment or, or impeachment. So I would definitely argue the fact that uh, the Democrats filed articles of impeachment. First of all, the idea of a president pardoning himself, that has never happened in our history. I have a very hard time thinking corpse would uphold that. But if they, if they do uh, vote in the Senate, and my understanding is, is that, you know, the House of Representatives votes articles of impeachment, sends it to the Senate. In order to remove him from office, two-thirds of the senators have to vote in favor of removal. Well, there's no point in removing Donald Trump now. He's already gone. Mm -hmm. However, they can, my understanding is just by a simple majority vote, they can vote to bar him from ever running for office again under the 14th Amendment. That's where I think Donald Trump's going to have a very serious problem because I, I think there's a very real chance that uh, there can be 51 senators, if you, if you include Kamala Harris as a potential tiebreaker, uh, and the two senators who just got elected from Georgia as Democrats, I think there's a very real chance that plus all these senators had to go through uh, their version of a high school active shooter drill, uh, just a few weeks ago, I think there's a very real chance that the majority of the senators could vote that Donald Trump can never hold public office again. That is uh, going to be, it's never happened in our history before with a president. I believe that has happened with some cabinet members, uh, most notably Grant's uh, defense secretary. So that is uh, going to be an interesting, I tell people, if nothing else, Donald Trump is going to give us uh, bar examiners some fascinating questions to ask bar students for the next hundred years that that will ultimately be his true legacy so i guess the obvious question is that uh you know the uh democrats just wanted to shame donald trump and you know prevent any kind of possible uprising through him or you know any of uh his faction to to run again in office but is there a possibility of criminal charges being laid against him Oh, I think there very definitely can be. Uh, now, first of all, the president does not have the power to uh, pardon anybody for state offenses. Okay. Now, uh, my understanding is the state of New York has uh, been investigating Donald Trump and Donald Trump's organiza business organizations for quite a while. They pretty much put everything on hold while he's been four years he's been president. So that's a separate issue than anything that he might Completely have done. separate. Completely separate. Yeah, he has absolutely no power to pardon himself or anybody else for state crimes, only federal crimes. Okay. Now, a uh, president can commute, pardon anybody for uh, federal crimes, but not state crimes. 
So that part alone, Donald Trump is going to have a serious, serious problem dealing with that. Uh, also, f- future tax evasion issues there. So uh, I, I, I think probably what goes on in the state courts in New York is probably going to be have a, I think Donald the old, uh, the old I Love Lucy show where Ricky Ricardo will say, you got some splaining to do. <laughs> I think he's going to have some splaining to do in the Southern District of New York. And uh, I think it's no coincidence that he decided he, he wasn't not going to move back to New York. He was going to move to Florida. Uh, of course, from what I've, from, what, from the stories I've heard about New York City these days, frankly, I wouldn't want to live there either right now. So, <laughs> Right. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean – as we can see, the federal government likes to protect its own. And so, like, you know, the whole story about the impeachment, the first impeachment of Donald Trump, uh, you know, when he was trying to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. But at the same time, Hunter Biden was under FBI surveillance while Donald Trump was asking the president of Ukraine, was there any dirt to be had? So, you know, now that Biden's in office, we'll see more corruption hidden and they seem to be wanting to uncover all the corruption that Donald Trump had. Like they just want to destroy this guy. Oh, they definitely have uh, Trump derangement syndrome is a very real thing. Uh, ironically, I think the, the 24 hour news channels are going to miss Donald Trump because he was great for their ratings. So yeah. <laughs> uh, ultimately that's going to be, <laughs> that's going to be their undoing. Now I think Hunter Biden, there's a lot more, to the story with Hunter Biden. Uh, will they be able to link that to Joe Biden? That, uh, I mean, Joe Biden's been a senator for a very, very long time. I tell people he's like a rusty weather vane. He turns in whatever direction the wind blows. Uh, he's, he's kind of the, uh, instead of being the senator from Delaware, it'd be more appropriate to say he's a senator from MasterCard. Uh, so I think he's, he's savvy enough to know that Bo Biden was the good son Hunter Biden was the not so good son that uh, I have no doubt he probably loved Hunter, but I have a really hard time believing that Joe Biden just completely turned was I'm I'm being a lawyer. So I'm going to phrase things very carefully here. Uh, On the one hand, I think he had a hard time not knowing what Hunter Biden was up to. Yet on the other hand, I think he was savvy enough to know that he was not going to be an active participant in Hunter Biden's activities. Mm-hmm. So I suspect he he'd found he's going to find a way to distance himself from whatever and all the various things Hunter Biden was doing. Uh, where I think Joe Biden is going to have major problems. First of all, I think he is in his mind. He's going to just basically, he's the restoration candidate. He's going to, re, he's going to restore the old order. Mm-hmm. He's going to try to restore the old order that Donald Trump destroyed. And it, I, I think he's going to find that uh, things have just simply gone too far. I think he's going to find that his own party, he's not even going to be able to govern his own party. I think that the, the, the democratic socialists, and let's call them that the democratic socialists, I also refer to him as the mean green. They're, they're, he's not going to be able to pacify them. They're not going to be satisfied with him at all. They did not like him at all. Mm-hmm. It was just purely that they they saw him as their best chance to get rid of Donald Trump. 
And uh, I, I agree with the people who say that 2016, it was more of a case that Hillary Clinton lost than Donald Trump won. That uh, So I, I do feel like now that Donald Trump, they, the Democrats did unite behind Joe Biden in order to get rid of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But now that Donald Trump is out of the picture, they're going to, they can't help themselves. They're going to start trying to take over stuff again. That's, that's the way socialists are. Well, is it possible that we're going to see a president Kamala Harris in the next four years? I would not be a bit surprised if uh, Kamala and the majority of the cabinet members invoke the 25th amendment to get rid of Joe Biden uh, based on the fact that he's mentally incompetent. I would not be a bit surprised to see that happen in, in the next four years. I suspect that before it gets to that point, Joe Biden will be uh, strongly encouraged to just go ahead and retire, resign from office, uh, or he'll be kind of like be frozen in carbonite or something <laughs> to where he, he just basically like he can't do anything. Uh, I think that's, that's a very real possibility the next four years. Yeah, I do think so. So we're going to have to uh, strap in our uh, seatbelts on for this political theater that we're going to continue to watch as most things coming from Washington are just, to me, just theater. I know a lot of people uh, rest their head on what goes on in Washington, D.C., but uh, for us freedom-loving individuals, you know, it's like, you know, just let them do what they're going to do and live your life to the fullest any way you can. Well, I, ha- I do have to say I have been very disappointed with my fellow freedom-loving uh, Americans the last 10 months. Uh, the, the Libertarian Party in particular, I feel like have totally missed a golden opportunity. Uh, I, the, to me, the doctors of the, that were behind the Great Barrington Declaration, uh, I would like to give a shout out for them. I, I agreed with what they say. I encourage people to go to the website of the Great Barrington Declaration and read it and decide for themselves if they want to sign it. I'm very disappointed that I have not heard more from freedom-loving Americans this last 10 months. And I can tell you, as a lawyer in particular who has devoted 20 years of his life to doing my part to uphold the Sixth Amendment, it sure looks to me, I was one of the last attorneys to do a jury trial in Dallas County mm. except in, in, in February 2020. We have not had a jury trial in Dallas County uh, since March of 2020. That simply cannot continue. It's, I mean, do we even have a Sixth Amendment anymore? Frankly, I'm starting to wonder. I really am. Yeah. Well, you know, let's end on a high note, Michael. You know, okay. <laughs> we do we do have we do have a new regime, a new emperor, you know, and depending on what side of the political spectrum you're on, it's gonna either, you know, unify, which I think we're both probably on the opposite side, or it's going to uh, you know, can further erode. But I always like when anything new starts, we have new people, new presidents, new uh new regimes with hope for the best, right? You know, I I've heard it and I've seen it on Facebook a couple of times, although I can't respond that people who are disagreeing with Joe Biden saying, you know what? I don't agree with his politics, but I wish him well. I hope that he actually does unify or attempts to unify. So this country just doesn't implode. You know, for me, I say just let it all dissolve. And I'm a secessionist. If you hear some of my other podcasters, but you know, I certainly hope there's not violence on the streets because of all this. Well, I hope so too. 
Now, I, I will say that all my life, I've heard old men say that the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, now I'm the old man saying the world's going to hell in a handbasket. So uh, if you want, if you want a high note, basically old men like me have been wrong so far every single ah. time. So, <laughs> so take that for whatever it's worth. Michael, you got anything you want to plug and, and anything that uh, you're doing publicly people should be aware of? Well, I'm kind of uh, looking of, of what, because I, I would like to see something that uh, freedom-loving people can get behind. Uh, to me, the Libertarian Party is just simply not up to the task. And uh, so I, I kind of like to find some foundation, legal foundation, because, you know, I do have a law license I have a certain talent for being able to stand up in a courtroom and weave a tapestry of words. So I try to use that talent in a good way. Uh, I will definitely say that I think you podcasters are, are doing the most good in the Liberty movement. Cause if nothing else, we, we need to prevent present people with an alternative to the mainstream media mm -hmm that uh, the, the empire media, because the, the empire controls the media, uh, the empire controls our education system. So I definitely would do encourage you podcasters to continue doing what y'all are doing to, to give people an, an alternate platform. Well, I appreciate that sentiment there, Michael. Uh, you know, I, I will probably have you on again. You, you've been a, a very a good go guest for me. And like I said, you've been on uh, Tommy Selman's show a few times. So, um, you know, wise men, and whether old or young, you know, wise men who want to uh, fight for liberty is what we need, just like you said. So, Okay. Well, take care of yourself, Mike. Thank you. I want to thank Michael Harris for coming back to the show. I also want to thank the listeners for spending an hour with us. We are moving forward despite the censorship on social media. And as Michael said, we will continue to be the pamphleteers of the Internet, bringing you news and ideas as we see them, but in such a way that we will empower ourselves to become Invictus. Once again, you can find us on any platform, but the best way to stay up to date is to get on the Invictus newsletter by texting the word Invictus to 33777. Okay, come back next week and we'll do it all over again. Until then, keep growing, stay peaceful, and stay free. Take care.